Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, John Droz. Uh, he's a physicist, and he writes a really interesting and unbelievably detailed newsletter that I get periodically that talks about uh, election issues, it talks about climate talks about COVID, et cetera. And I found it to be incredibly informative. Uh, there's literally dozens of unique articles in each edition that he sends out. And I could see John spends a tremendous amount of time gathering sources and references and really trying to do a, a major scholar's job on current events that are going on in our world. So I benefited a lot from it. And that's why I have him here, because uh, he's got two new papers or articles that he's written that I want to discuss. So uh, welcome back, John. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate you being here. By the way, one clarification, my newsletter comes out every two weeks. So it's not randomly, but every two weeks. And what's it called? The Media Balance Letter? Or Media Balance Newsletter, right. We're trying to put some uh, balance into what people ordinarily see in mainstream media, which is mm. often one-sided, often incomplete, often inaccurate. Yep. Really, really problematic that we live in a situation where you can't trust the media here, but uh, that's the way it is. Yeah, I'll give listeners a quick example. Um, I live in Texas, and you know we had this—they call it Snowmageddon. You know, early this year in, in February, um, we were in a hotel for like a week. We had no water, etc. And John's newsletter and an interview with him, I learned tons of background information on what really happened that I never would have known. So again, thank you, John, for doing that. And you know, listeners should really hearken and listen in big time. So, John, what, what are these two new papers that you put out? Let's start with the first one and, and discuss it. Okay, one last pitch about the newsletter. The newsletter is free, and we have over 10,000 subscribers. So any of your readers who would like to get it simply uh, can email me. And on these reports I'm going to cite here, my emails on both of them. So email me anyway, and I'd be glad to add them to our free distribution. Uh, one quick second, John. Would you, what's your email? Let's just spell it out okay. so that people can get it easily. They don't have to go looking. What is it? Well, I'm going to hope that we're going to be looking at these reports anyways. But, uh, hmm. okay, my, my email is aaprjohn. So that's Apple, Apple, Peter, Robert, J-O-H-N, at mm -hmm. northnet, N-O-R-T-H-N-E-T dot org. Great. Thank you, John. But one of my uh, biggest uh, issues of concern is about how science is being uh, either not used or misused. Okay. Let me start from that perspective, because that will relate to these reports. Most people have a lot of respect for science. In fact, uh, people I would call bad actors frequently use science as an endorsement. They say, you know, this is based on the best science available or some other type of uh, malarkey. And they do that uh, for two reasons. One is that they um, know that an endorsement by science is sort of like giving, getting the good housekeeping seal of approval. So that's that the, the average person thinks, Hey, that's, that's, that's credible. And the second thing is they know that 99% probably plus of the public doesn't really understand what science is. So even though they make this claim, very few people, very few people will understand that it's bogus. 
because they don't understand what science is. So that's a lot of what my role is, whether it's in the newsletter or it's on the, the web page that I put up or talks I've given. I gave a talk last night at the Villages, for instance, in Florida about election matters. But they're all pretty much based on the fact that science is being either misrepresented, mis- mischaracterized, misused, ignored, whatever. So question is, why, why do we have such a thing as science? Well, the simple answer to that is that science exists for one, primarily one and only one reason, and that is to give us answers on our technical problems things that we have in daily life that are technical problems. It's not going to tell you what religion to have, but I'm talking about technical problems. So when we have a COVID pandemic, let's say, this is a a classic example that's a technical problem to our society. So when we're trying to say, what should we be doing about this pandemic? Should I stay inside or not? Should I wear a mask or not? Should I get vaccinated or not? Blah, 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 blah. All these type of questions should be easy to be answered uh, if you understand and apply science. Problem is, there are people who don't want the results that science gives us. They, they know what direction, if you go to the way of science, they know what the answer is going to be, and that isn't what they want. So they want a, a different answer than science will actually give them. So What they've introduced is an alternative to science. They don't call it this, but this is what it is. And that is political science. The fact that they even put this name in there, science, is just part of the the whole idea of of, uh, dishonesty. Uh, There's no such thing as political science, in my opinion. It's really politics. So you're dealing with politics versus real science. But when a variety of people get up and say this is science, what they're really saying, if they're being honest, would be, this is what political science has to do. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that science is, has, has two characteristics to it. One is that it's objective. The other is that it's comprehensive. Okay. There's some other things, too. But th- those are two of the key objectives of science, or characteristics of science, I should say. So, in other words, when we're analyzing, should we do A or B? So let's say, for instance, we're looking at uh, possible drugs for treatment of COVID-19. The analysis should be comprehensive, other thorough, and objective. Now, this is the people doing the uh, uh, analysis don't start off with some preconceived idea or preconceived objective. They're looking at it with open-mindedness, open-mindedness, and, and uh, they're going to let the facts dictate where the chips fall. Well, John, in my you know limited experience and talking to a lot of people, um, I just don't see that. For whatever reason, I'm sure you know, uh, people don't take much time to do anything. They they just want and need shortcuts, and so they're not really going to do much investigation. Just well, I'm talking about in this case, and... I'm I'm talking about the leaders of our uh, scientific community. No, there's the, the medical leader. Oh. So in this oh, okay. particular well, case, the responsibility is on what I would call the medical establishment. So that would be the FDA, the CDC, the AMA, WHO, and so forth. Those people have science credentials. Those people are in charge of giving the public advice and recommendations. It's up to those people to do a scientific assessment of the options and so forth available to us in this pandemic. I'm not saying yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think uh, a mayor of a given city knows? Like, how much information do you think they know? What's been filtered? What are the dynamics of the decisions that a given mayor would make? Well, probably a governor is a more appropriate one because they have okay. that sort of say, but uh, th- those people are by and large listening to what the medical establishment is saying. So in other words, they would refer to, this is what the CDC says, or this is what the FDA says, or this is what the American Medical Association says, or this is what the World Health Organization says. Those would be the people they would cite. Okay. They, 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 but, they have, let's say a governor, they would have well, their they own might, health they, might, they might cite them, but what information do you think they're actually getting? Like, what do you imagine it's like to be a governor of a given state? You're getting in information from 20 different sources, or like, how do you think they come to make their decisions and where are they falling down? 
Well, that is the crux of the problem here. They're making decisions based on politics, in my opinion, and they they have little understanding of science. Just because a person is a governor doesn't mean they have any technical background or science background. Hmm. And so they're being they are relying on, let's say, people like uh, Dr. Fauci, people like that. These are the people hmm. that are standing up and saying X, Y, Z. So if if I question, let's say, the governor of New York, and the governor of New York cites. Fauci for saying something, he's going to say, well, or she's going to say, you know, okay, fine. Well, what do you want me to do? This guy's recognized A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all these credentials, blah, blah, blah. What, what? You're trying to say I should, uh, you know, ignore what he says, overrule what he says, whatever. Mm. And obviously that that is a, a difficult situation. I, I'm perfectly sympathetic with that. So who I blame here is not so much the legislative federal and state leaders who have been misled. I personally think the responsibility is on the people who are doing the misleading. So I think mm. it's I think it's the FDA's fault for not doing the right thing. It's the CDC's fault for not following science. It's the WHO's fault for not following science. And mm. uh, that's what my first report is about. Okay? That's why it is the okay. first report. So my title of the report here uh, is called Some Scientific Observations About the Medical Establishment's Handling of COVID-19 to Date. That's the title of it. Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. You know, we want people to obviously read the report, but what are some of the the highlights that maybe were even surprising to you or just the confirmation of the, the things you already knew? Well, I, I found it a lot of it surprising and disappointing. As far as where to get these, I put up put a website up for all of my reports. I have like 10 different, uh, these are, there's two major reports and then there's eight other one or two page documents on various aspects. So they're all located in one place. So anybody wants to see these, where my email is also is the web link is C19, like COVID-19, but C19 science. So no spaces, C19science.info. So you'll see the introductions, a little discussion about science. Then it lists uh, 10, uh, 10 reports and documents I put together on this. And then in addition to that, I have about uh, 60 other uh, reports and studies that I felt were particularly worthwhile and I've broken them down by topic, like on vaccine and uh, therapies, stuff like that. So there's, there's quite a bit of information on this one page that's all free. Uh, it's only been up four days, and there's already been over 40,000 viewers of it, which is pretty good for a technical site. Yeah. I've gotten hundreds of people who uh, I have my email right on there say, look, you've got any suggestions for improvements, whatever, errors, you, you tell me what they are. I've gotten hundreds, probably 500 uh, comments, and 100% of them, surprisingly, have been positive. There isn't a single person who's wrote me so far that says, you're wrong, or you've left off so major any, stuff. Any trolls that said, you're, right. you're an idiot, or anything like that? Surprisingly, or Okay. Probably, uh, now they're hearing this, they're going to be incentivized. I, I know, as at this point, zero. Okay. Anyway, Again, we so my first there. report is about looking into how how the medical establishment handled this thing from a science point of view here. And in every part of that, I feel that they they failed. And so I broke it into a few different chapters. The first chapter is about explaining what science is a little bit about it. And then there is a chapter about an overview. For instance, one, one of the major things, I've, I've listened to dozens of these, uh, I don't let's, let's call them talks, by Fauci, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Birx, whatever, they were presented here uh, every day for quite a while. And yeah. one of the things I was listening for, because I, I do have some health knowledge, is for them to say, look, we're here to try to maximize 
your resistance to this virus. Okay? We want you to have the minimum complications from it. So the first thing, the first thing we are telling you is the best chance you have for doing that is to optimize your immune system. Your immune system is your first line of defense against everything that's a a threat to you here medically. So that's bacteria, viruses, fungal things, whatever. Your immune system is your first line of defense. So it's low cost, it's simple, it's something everyone can do to try to maximize their immune system here. And there are several ways that are well-documented that will help to do that. Well, John, can I I give you one one interesting cartoon I saw that may summarize a lot of what you're going to say? Okay. Is a, a picture of a woman and her daughter, and the daughter says, Mommy, what's an immune system? And she says, Don't worry, dear, we don't believe in those anymore. Yeah, that is a good cartoon. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, that, that, I, I hope that's not true, but yes, that's uh, certainly sort of the impression you get. Because my point was going to be that of all the dozens of times I've heard Dr. Fauci, Burks, et cetera, talk, and, and the CDC people, FDA people, I have yet to hear a single one of them even mention their immune system. Astoundingly incompetent. There's no logic, there's no science explanation that says, well, an immune system is a non-matter here, so it's uh, dishonest or inaccurate or whatever you want to say to mention this to the public. There is zero science that would say that. There is significant science that says what I just said, and that is that it's your first line of defense against threats from bacteria, viruses, and whatever. So why wouldn't they do that? Why wouldn't they start off with that? Then they can go into their other thing. But why wouldn't they start off by saying, do that, and here's a few simple things that don't cost you anything. You can start today about that. Why wouldn't they have done that? Yeah, I can only ascribe nefarious purposes to all the, the statements they're making. I can't, you know. I, well, this I, is an omission, not a statement. This is an omission. Yeah. Okay. In my view, it's uh, th- this is just a, a clear indication from someone who is looking at what they're saying, what they're not saying, as far as how scientific is their approach here. This is an extraordinary omission that there's no explanation for whatsoever. They, they aren't incompetent, so it's not like they're stupid. But for some reason, politically, they don't find this an appropriate thing to say. Politically. This is a political matter. I'd say, well, why would that be? Well, because if they start saying you have other alternatives here, that would uh, detract people from saying, well, okay, I need to uh, get a vaccine, let's say, or something else here, if there's some other alternative. They don't want you to believe there's an alternative. And that's just scientifically false. There are alternatives. So that's the type of things discussed in my report here, my first report here. I think that's profoundly important. It's indisputable that uh, an immune system is a, is a key element to your medical, your health defense here. Uh, I talked to some people who were immunologists, you know, that the, the, their whole career is based on, you know, they're getting a PhD in immunology. And one of the things I found out that was surprising, you asked me what things I thought were surprising and which not, but one of the things I found out was surprising was that some of these people told me that uh, in the field of uh, medicine, that immunology is sort of treated like a black sheep. Part of their answer and part of my uh, deductions are that the average run-of-the-mill doctor or whatever, these people in medical establishment, by the way, when I'm saying medical establishment, I'm not talking about frontline doctors. I'm talking about administrative bureaucrats here who are running these organizations. But even doctors are somewhat... uh, remiss or cautious about talking about immune system. And I think the main reason is that they don't understand it. The whole area of immune system is somewhat of a mystery to most people in the medical field, surprisingly. It's a mystery. They don't really understand. A lot of things in our body are things we don't understand, and the immune system is one of them. And so they pride themselves in being knowledgeable experts they're not likely to jump into something that they can be easily embarrassed about by saying something that's false. So they just avoid it. Yeah. Well, that's a nice way to put it. And I have spoken to thousands of people and they'll, you know, they're quick to say, well, I'm not an expert in X. So that's like a, just about all scientists have been trained to do that and to stick to their knitting. But 
just like the uh, the debate between antibiotics and drugs that you have to take forever, there's not enough money in antibiotics, and it seems like that's why there's barely any being researched or created. Maybe with immunology, it's the same thing. I mean, there's a nefarious part where it's not just people don't understand it, but well, if if we talk about the immune system, then there's no need for drugs or vaccines or any of that stuff, and so we don't want to talk about it. We'll minimize it, so it's not on the table. Yes, I think that is part of it as well. So that's the second factor. They don't understand it as one that they that they may find that it competes with some other agenda they have. Again, that's not science. That's what I'm starting off with. Science is 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 uh, comprehensive and objective. So any objective assessment of the of our solutions to COVID-19, for instance, doesn't start off saying, well, I'm only going to tell the listeners half the story here because that's the half I want them to pay attention to. No one objective assessment would say, here's all the things they are, and, you know, you decide for yourself. Anyway, that's one of the, I picked out 10 different things that I was concerned about here in this report, and that's one of them. Another example that I'm, 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 I find unscientific is, uh, the whole, the data, all the data we're getting here on COVID-19, 100% of it, I would say, pretty much, rounded number, is suspect. Every part of it. So, you know, we're making all sorts of decisions, say, well, we should or shouldn't do this, should or shouldn't do wear masks, should or shouldn't get vaccinated, blah, blah, blah. And it comes back to data. But the data itself is suspect. So we have very poor data here. Why is that? Well, part of it's political. So, for instance, they have specifically chosen not to segregate, let's say, mortalities, people who died. They have specifically chosen not to carefully segregate people who died with COVID-19 compared to people who died from COVID-19. That's a profound difference. Profound. And yet they're lumping them all together. So I'm saying if you so if a person gets killed in a car accident and they happen to have COVID nineteen, they're listed as a COVID nineteen fatality. That that's just that's just bananas. I mean that's again unscientific. Just just right. travesty. Furthermore, a lot of their data uh, you may have heard uh, is is retrieved from this VAERS VAERS system that the CDC maintains, which is fine. But there's two main problems with this system. Number one. It's, uh, well, maybe more than two. Number one, it's voluntary. In other words, there's no, there's no mandate. There's no, uh, requirement that they have to do it. So it's voluntary. Second of all, it's subjective. So if a doctor or a medical practitioner says, okay, John Doe, uh, died here and, uh, they died from COVID-19. Well, who, who is it that checks that to say, whether, in fact, they had comorbidities and things of that nature. Well, I can tell you, no one. No one is checking. Oh, oh, John, here's something that may interest you. So a while back, I had, you know, well, it seemed to be I had COVID. A bunch of people said, oh, did you have the Delta variant? And I said, I don't know. They're not going to check. It requires a total separate test and sequencing and all that. And then I realized, wait a minute. They're not testing anybody for this Delta variant. It probably doesn't even exist. I mean, who are they going to test? They're just doing PCRs and everybody. Are they going to spend the extra time and effort to to sequence what they think they have? And do they even have a reference sample? So I don't know if you're aware of that, but that, that whole yes, thing. Is I, I, well, I'm aware in general the data we're dealing with is garbage. So that that's yep. why I'm concerned about when people say, well, yes, we've had this many deaths or this many this, this many that. And they say, well, from that data, we then we're going to make this law or mandate that people had get vaccinated or lose their job. All this kind of stuff is based on data. But if the data is garbage in the first place, everything that follows from it is equally worthless. Another study that was done by Harvard that was sort of an eye-opener because Harvard is not some radical right-wing group here. Harvard concluded that the the VAERS data system only actually reflected about 1% of the real-world result. 1%! Well, now now tell people the numbers in the U.S. and Europe, and now extrapolate from 1%. And, yeah, well, I suspect 1%. This was, this was pre-COVID, so I think people are paying more attention now, so I'm sure, I'm sure it's 10%. much more than 1%. But 
So I, I, don't, I don't like to make these generalities, but yes, let's say it's 10%, but I'm just saying it's going to be more than 1%, but it's certainly way less than 50%. But again, between the fact that we don't have complete data and the data is subjective, the, the data is worthless. It, this isn't science. You can't be making science or policy decisions on unscientific data. So that's another problem. Well, not, not only are these decisions being made on BS data, but I know the entire world's not in lockstep, but a vast majority of it has been. What, why do you think it's been so pervasive? Why do you think everyone has been doing the same thing? I mean, the elected officials are supposed to know actual real data. I would think that they certainly have the resources to get it. So do they have no. the real data and no. they're just ignoring it? Or no. like, why are so many nations and, and governors and everything in lockstep? What's, what's your thought? Well, it's because of what I've indicated already. All of these leaders here are relying on the medical establishment for everything. They're relying on the medical establishment for data. So the governor of New York or the president of the United States is, doesn't go about getting data separately. No, he relies on the CDC and the FDA and WHO for data. So that you answer your own question away here. All of these countries are relying on the same sources of data. Well, that's yeah, why they're doing the same stuff. But if you're the president of a given country, are you just going to, I mean, do you think they're just relying on the CDC and FDA data? I mean, they have the resources to get the real answers. I mean, if no, the First of all, they don't have the resources to do that technically because this is something that an agency is already assigned for. I mean, the question would be if, if you don't believe, let's say Biden says, I don't believe the CDC data, so I'm going to set up another whole group of people that are going to get real data here. I've, the obvious question is, well, then what's the point of the CDC or the FDA if you don't believe their data? Why, why do they even exist? Or second of all, why don't you fix them so that they do have the right type of data instead of starting up something new? That That is the questions that should be asked here, but they're not. They're trusting this data. And this comes back to science again. These These government leaders, by and large, are not scientifically educated people. So... They don't know squat about science, and as a result, they this is out of their realm. This is out of their lane. So when PhDs and stuff like that are saying, "Here's the data. Here's the conclusions." Blah blah blah. Who is it? Who, who are who are they to stand up and say you're full of crap? <laughs> They're not going to say that. They just aren't. And that's even why people like Trump got uh, sucked into these people as well here. So you can be. Uh, an open-minded person or closed-minded or can be right on the right or left, uh, you're going to be sucked into this this bureaucratic mess here. Do you, do you think, you know, these organizations knew or no? I mean, do you think they know that they're lying to all the world leaders? Absolutely. You, Absolutely. It takes balls. I mean, I would think you'd have to have major, 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 like run the world type people backing in order to do that stuff. So what well, could, what could these organizations be thinking? By, by putting out these lies to I, the whole that's world. That's why my reports are here, uh, Richard. They explain the details here of what's actually going on here. So you need to read the report to see the whole thing here. But part, part of the reason is these bureau, bureaucracies have been taken over by big pharmaceutical companies. That's who. So in other words, if you, if you go to the FDA, let's just say as an example, and you look at, they have a board, let's say, that decides... Which which drug is going to be approved or not approved for anything? The, the connections with the people on that board and the pharmaceutical companies here is extraordinary. I'm just making this up. But let's say there's 20 people on the board. 16 of them would have been former employees of the pharmaceutical business, and the other four would hold stock in the pharmaceutical company. It's unbelievably biased. They aren't objective, independent people making decisions. And, and that's part of the problem here. Uh, again, that's what my report is about here. It's clear that their, their, their decisions are based on, number one, promoting a political agenda. Well, the political agenda is that uh, governments need to have more power to take more control over citizens. So that means they, they have the right to mandate well, a condition for employment, a condition for being the military service, blah, blah, blah. That, that's, a, that's a freedom and liberty type of thing that's, that's extraordinary. And the second thing is, is that they are trying to do things that are going to promote the economic interest of these uh, companies, these pharmaceutical medical companies that are going to profit from this, this whole arrangement. 
those two reasons are the two primary reasons these are, these things are happening. But it, I'm, don't take my word for it. That's what the report is mm-hmm. about. I have over 100 citations of studies, whatever, to explain it. Yeah, I believe you. I believe you. It's just, so does that tell you that Big Pharma runs the world? Has it gotten to that point? Well, no, we're not talking about medicine? the world. We're talking about uh, the medical profession here. Uh, it, it runs the medical profession, yes. Yeah. Right, but again, all these countries did the same stuff. So, I mean, in a way, they've influenced the entire world dramatically. Yeah. So Medically, you, yes. You say they run the world. Right. Well, they, they, you know, I think they, there are other opportunists that uh, came along, let's say, that are polit- politicians, and they say, hey, uh, this this whole uh, pandemic is uh, opening the door for us to uh, institute, take more power, institute controls. I mean, for instance, here's an example. In New York State, Governor Cuomo, the former Governor Cuomo person in every regard, uh, he was one of the people that used this as a means of getting more power. So he passed what are called executive orders that would be directed about one one thing or another as far as daily life, government operations, whatever, these are special executive orders that he instituted that gave him more authority. Now, how many, how many, just make a ballpark guess, how many uh, executive orders like this do you think Governor Cuomo instituted regarding COVID-19? I don't know, dozens? Over 250. Yeah, wow. this again, these are facts. This isn't a matter of John's opinion. These are documented things. Here. And, and that was the last t- total I came. So maybe up to 300. But just think about that. 250 executive uh, orders to say, I need the authority to do something. So these bypassed all the normal channels. This isn't something that legislators vote on. No, these are executive orders where this this governor just took it upon himself to say, I need this authority. And people say, well, why is that? And his answer would be, because we have a life and death emergency. That's why. Right, yeah. So that's separate from the pharmaceutical business, but I'm saying that there were bad actors here who took advantage of the situation and saw it as an opportunity to expand their control. Well, does that does that explain the complete insanity of Australia and New Zealand? I mean, especially Australia, it's like it's turned back into a penal colony, literally. How how do you explain uh, that? Or yes, the same reason? I would say that's part of it. That these these leaders. Uh, People in power are always looking for more power, right? I mean, that isn't some shocking thing. So, so when something comes along that says, uh, here's, here's a tool or here's a justification you can use to take more power, uh, I'm telling you, a lot of people will do that. Back to our topic here. How much have we got time? We're on one hour today. Is that the? Yeah, we can go another 15, 20 minutes or so. so let's see the other paper that you were. Okay, well, let me just finish up on the first one. So, no, I I listed 10 different examples in that first document about the medical establishment, 10 specific examples, every one of them with multiple citations, about how the medical establishment has deviated from science. That's the whole point here. And these are people we're trusting our lives with, literally, from from a medical point of view, a health point of view, they're supposed to be, if you look at the FDA's uh, statutory obligations, uh, by and large, it says that they're supposed to be looking out for the health, safety, and welfare of, of the citizens, right? Right, yep. They're not if they if they are not going about this in a scientific manner. So, if, in other words, if when they come into making a decision about drug A versus drug B, and if they do it based on who is the person, the company that's producing it that has the more uh, political influence. That's not about the, the, the health, safety, and welfare of citizens. That's about the economic benefit of some company. That, that's a no-no. That's, that's a huge no-no. So anyways, the first, the first document, which is sort of setting the stage here, uh, explains very clearly 10 different ways the medical establishment has deviated from science, has failed to do a scientific assessment of the COVID-19 matter. Fail. Okay. So that's my indictment. Now, then we get into one aspect of it that I thought would be beneficial. And that is the aspect is what's, what's called a treatment or therapy. So the question is, what, what is an appropriate therapy? So if you come down with COVID-19 symptoms, let's say you go to your medical professional, a, a doctor. 
what should he be telling you to do? The thing that got me going on this is that, by and large, the vast majority of medical professionals, these are people who have degrees in medicine here, are saying to you, the person who's now been inflicted with this, go home, get some rest, have some fluids. If things get really serious, come back and we'll admit you to the hospital. Okay. Now, I don't have to be a, a medical expert to know that that is a preposterous, a preposterous therapy treatment or a life and death matter. It's one thing if you had a cold and they told you that, but we're talking about a life and death matter here. You know how many people have died in the United States so far from this? No one knows. Well, according to their figures, let's put it that way. Oh, according to their right, yeah. According to their figures, millions over uh, you know, nearly two well, years. Not, not millions. The, the, the current total is about a little over 700,000. 700,000 Americans have died from COVID-19 is what they're, they're telling us. Again, I'm not taking that as being an exact number, but that's what they're saying. That's what they're acknowledging here. How many, how many other people, how many other things we've had of this, this, this magnitude? How many people would you say died? How many Americans died, let's say, in World War II? Well, another stat, a stat I looked at a year and a half ago is on average, every day in the United States, 7,250 people die. That's the average every day. Yes, I'm sure they're doing daily death rates and everything. I mean, it's against that backdrop. It's like 2.8 million a year, approximately, that die. Okay, well, what they show you is that they they do have uh, charts that show uh, historically the number of people that died, and they have that, and then they show uh, an elevated, in other words, an amount on top of that, that they are attributing to COVID-19. That's part of my objective and objection should say in the first uh, report, because what that says is that all things are equal. Once we say, okay, all these things are above, all things are equal. So every, uh, the difference between these two things can be accurately uh, attributed to uh, COVID-19. But the fact is that isn't true for several reasons. And I don't see anyone keeping track of these numbers. So for instance, it's been well documented that during uh, the uh, that, that people just going to the hospital in general, there's a lot of people who die because of hospitalization. In other words, the sterility of the hospital, whatever. In fact, studies have shown on an annual year, something like 200,000 people die needlessly in American hospitals because of unsterile conditions, things of that nature. 200,000. Mm-hmm. Well, that's 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 regular run-of-the-mill people going to the hospital for a knee operation or pregnancy or a bunch of other things. Now we're talking about flooding the hospital with COVID cases. So mm-hmm. what is the number that are going to die now because of sterility conditions, because of this huge influx? Not, not a COVID problem, but because of the hospitalization that more people are exposed to some of the other pathogens and so forth that are in a hospital setting. Well, there hasn't been a report done on that, but I'm saying 200,000 already is there without all this. So it would be easy to understand that maybe 300,000, 250,000 would be likely here. So is anybody keeping that into account? No. There's been documented, there's been a substantial increase of suicides from COVID policies and lockdowns and people losing their jobs like that. There's a substantial number of deaths due to drug overdoses. New, new, over above because of COVID-19. There's a substantial number of increase of murders that they're attributing to COVID-19. There's a substantial number of other type of things like Alzheimer's, whatever, that uh, are now uh, because of COVID-19. So if they take all those other things out and say, these are, these are other things that uh, have increased and, and subtracted them from the 700,000, I think you'd find there's a substantially much lower number, much lower number. But again, that's explaining number one. Okay, so back to number two here, my report, second report. Uh, what I decided to do is I, I, I looked, I, I read up on the FDA's rules for approving a drug. So that's the question here. As I said, just sending someone home and doing nothing makes no sense. They wouldn't do that, even as I said, even if you had the flu or something else. They'd tell you to do something. But well, you're there with a life and death thing, and they're telling you to do nothing. Something is wrong here. I mean, you don't have to be a medical expert to figure that out. So when I looked at the FDA's approvals, I found that there's only one drug that they've approved here for COVID-19 treatment, and that's called remdesivir. Okay, so this is an approved drug. Now, 
The question is, to me, something like ivermectin here, which has uh, a lot of studies about it. When you present this to people like the CDC or the FDA or WHO, they dismiss it. In fact, if you look at their sites, they say that. They say but it only it only won the Nobel Prize and it's only been used, you know. Yeah. So well, their 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 answer to that is that it's an anti-parasitic drug here, and that's why it won the Nobel Prize. This is a this is a virus, not a parasite. But the fact is that it has been documented as being what's called a broad spectrum drug. In other words, it does more than parasitic things here. So that's again the type of things you're getting from the media. That's a lie. They they continue to repeat this story, saying. It's just a, it's a horse dewormer, stuff like that. That's a total dishonest lie. That's factually false. So it's been documented to be effective as an antiviral. So it's called a broad spectrum. It does more than one thing, in other words, a broad spectrum drug. So anyways, the question is, uh, when, when you bring up these type of things, say, why isn't uh, ivermectin, we'll just focus on that here, why hasn't that been approved? The FDA's answer is, they're looking into it, but there hasn't been enough studies uh, done here to warrant it. I'm, I'm giving that as the, that's the gist of their answer. All right. Yeah. So the problem with that is, Richard, is that that's a sort of a subjective answer. They don't say how many studies you need. So if you go and right. look at what the FDA's approval process is, they have a document. It's in, in this my second report here. It gives you the document of exactly what is required to do to meet this this approval. Well, in the document, it doesn't say that you need five tests or 10 tests or 20 tests. It doesn't say that. It's, it's, it's fairly vague as far as that goes. But one thing it does say that's sort of important is that uh, any drug that uh, wants to be approved for uh, therapy for any medical condition has to have a sponsor. So in other words, they don't just go pick things. There has to be a sponsor. So what this sponsor does is they shuttle this thing and move this through the whole process. They grease the skids here. Okay, well, the sponsor, for instance, for uh, Desivere was uh, Smith-Klein, uh, is it? Yes, maybe. Oh, GlaxoSmithKline? Gilead, uh, Gilead Sciences, yes. Hmm. So they're the manufacturer of this uh, remdesivir. Okay, so yeah, they were a huge. Uh, there was a huge study showing it was pretty much worthless, like out of Israel. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that. Okay, so I said, okay, what I want to do here is I'm gonna do a report that's gonna examine. They say here here is an actual COVID nineteen drug that they've approved. So we're not talking about some some unrelated matter here. This is a COVID-19 drug they, the FDA, actually approved. So what did they accept as being acceptable for remdesivir? And then let's compare that to what ivermectin has shown to see whether they do, in fact, meet the criteria that remdesivir did, which the FDA found appropriate. So that's what the study's about. So here's the fact. So it's explained there. First of all, remdesivir... I'm, I'm reading from the FDA page here. They said uh, their their positive decision was based on these studies, and they list the studies, and there are five studies, okay? Five yeah. studies, not, not 20 or 100, but five studies. This is what the FDA says on their website. These are the studies that convinced us to uh, approve remdesivir. Well, then I did one step further. I actually went and read all or at least part of the abstracts, of each of these studies. Here's the amazing thing. Four out of the five studies did not endorse remdesivir as being particularly effective. They were very mixed in their things. They said, well, it may be nominally effective. Well, it has a little bit of benefit here, but it has some liabilities there. Only one study said this is a good thing. The other four were neutral or negative. So in other words, that they're saying we approved the, this, this drug on one positive study. Again, this is in my opinion. This is what they're saying. One positive study was all it took for us to approve this drug. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the five studies, if you add up the net conclusions, the net conclusion would probably be negative. Okay. So this is all explained, and I get citations for all these things in this second report. So 
Uh, then you would say, all right, okay, well, that doesn't sound that impressive here. So what does ivermectin have to show? Well, as of today, and they're still saying the same thing on their website, they're not approving it. As of today, there are 64 scientific studies about ivermectin. Yeah, right, because it's nebulous, they'll never... They'll never do anything with it. They'll just they'll use the nebulous. There's nothing nebulous about it. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to get off this nebulous part here. Once they have approved another drug here, they've already defined what's necessary to do it. So it's no longer nebulous. All we have to do now is meet the criteria that Remdesivir met. That's okay. my point. Well, supposedly, but it's right. They changed the rules. For one thing, the rules are easy. Oh, For the other one, it's impossible. Right. Fine. If they want to admit that, fine. But uh, they're not acknowledging that. But uh, yes. But then the obvious question would be, why, why would there be different rules for two different drugs that are trying to solve the same problem? Why would that make any sense? Well, again, it comes down to the big pharmacy influence. So the Remdesivir had a sponsor and somebody pushing it here, this this big company. Now, the problem with the quote-unquote problem with the ivermectin is there's no drug company that holds the patent anymore. None. Well, Merck used to hold the patent. This was a drug that was invented in Japan, and they procured it from the Japanese uh, researcher, and uh, they did a good job with it for whatever the years, uh, 20 years or so, that the patent allows them to do that. But the patent has run out some time ago. So now it's a generic drug like uh, aspirin. So anybody right. can make ivermectin. So there, there was no sponsor for ivermectin in front of the FDA because no drug company stands to make a killing for ivermectin. None. One of my recommendations here is why isn't there a, a consumer advocate? In other words, someone there that's representing the, the public here instead of just pharmaceutical companies so that they would stand up and say, here, here's a drug that ought to be uh, evaluated here, and they'd be the sponsor, and they shepherd this through the process. But from what I can see, they don't have such, an, uh, such a position. So that's one of my recommendations, that there should be. But if you compare, again, five studies with one positive to uh, ivermectin here, which has 64 studies, and out of those, 45 of them, 45 were peer-reviewed. Now, these are the same people that talk about climate change, stuff like that, and say peer review is the gold standard. 45 yeah. studies here were positive about ivermectin that were peer reviewed. Well, facts don't matter. Science doesn't matter, okay. as we think. I, I hope that's not the case here, but uh, I'm just showing that in this particular situation, they have chosen to ignore the facts because there's other people who stand to profit from this. So back to Merck here, uh, they, uh, they took the unusual step because a lot of people said, you know, what about you? What is your position about this? Well, of course, Merck, when they owned the uh, patent on ivermectin, they never looked at it as a, an antiviral. They looked at it as an antiparasitic. And that was their focus, which is fine. That's all they choose to do. So people subsequent to that found out it was an antiviral. Uh, but Merck no longer had the patent, so they never did anything about it. So when people ask Merck, say, well, what do you think about uh, ivermectin as a COVID-19 treatment? Well, first of all, Merck has never done any analysis about ivermectin and COVID-19 or any virus for that matter. Zero. So they're really not a qualified party to say anything about it, even though they held the patent. They never did this, these uh, the studies and research necessary. But surprisingly, which is really disturbing, they came out with a very strong public statement uh, against ivermectin. Not, not, not just saying we don't know. They said it's unproven and uh, they, a, lot, a lot of these type of other negative implications here. Well, you'd say, well, why would a, a large drug company like that go to the trouble of knocking something that they, they were intimately involved with, the fact that it might be very beneficial? Why, why would they do that? Well... Uh, this that that announcement or that position that's cited on my document, on my report there, uh, came out. I don't know something like in March. Well, about a month ago, there was a new announcement from Merck saying they were going to introduce a drug that's going to treat COVID nineteen. Right, a one that's not generic, of course. Well, of course not. This is a patented drug here, right? Well, this is a new drug, so yes. Well, I can tell you that the the, the lead time to do this. They don't just do that in a week or a month or several months. It probably takes a year of research to, 
you know, put together, do some tests, all this kind of other stuff. Uh, so they knew long before they come out with this March statement here against ivermectin that they were planning on introducing this this drug. So in other words, ivermectin, from their perspective, is now their competition. Yeah, I saw a, a joke saying they're going to call it Pfizer-mectin. That's what they're working on. Well, Pfizer is a different company, but uh, yes, this is Merck. Right, right? Yes. right. or Merck yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes, Pfizer is doing something similar here. Well, to give you a perspective of how big a deal this is, uh, Merck, I, I, this is round numbers here, but Merck is a company that maybe makes something like $50 billion a year. Okay. So something in that ballpark, a modestly good sized company in today's standards. But just, just two weeks ago, they came out with a statement saying they expected this new COVID-19 uh, drug there uh, they've already applied to the FDA to approve to bring in something like $7 billion just in the first year alone. Well, a $7 billion increase of a $50 billion company is no trivial small matter. This would be their biggest product probably of anything. Does that tell you that um, they know that uh, or they suspect that, uh, you know, the this genetic modification, mRNA, I don't even want to call it a vaccine, uh, is going to fail? Does that also tell you that or no? I, I don't think so. It, it could, but to be a little more cynical than I'm, I'm probably, I'm already cynical enough here. But I think they, they realize that when you're considering this a worldwide matter, that there is plenty of people that they could sell this to irrespective of vaccinations, injections. So I think they believe that there's, there's, there's just huge markets here for big pharma here on all aspects of this thing here. The amount of money available here is just mind-blowing. And that's why there's so much corruption. So my point is, though, that uh, they are applying to the FDA. My, my bet is that the FDA is likely going to approve it because there is somebody that's a sponsor and pushing it. Now, in my view, the best site here that has done really a sensational job, and I, I, I list this on my, um, my, my second report here, I'm going to bring it up for myself here. This study, they, they've come up with a couple of names to it, but one is IVMMeta, M-E-T-A dot com. So Ivermectin is the abbreviation, I assume, IVM, M-E-T-A, Meta, Meta Studies. So IVMMeta dot com. So on that, on that page, if, uh, which has, which lists all these 64 studies, they have a, they have another, uh, another link up at the top here. And it's, and it gives you a comprehensive list of all possible treatments for ivermectin. And it shows you all the studies for each one of them. So I'm looking at it now. There's about 30 treatments, 30. These range from aspirin to zinc, but they include ivermectin. They include HCL. They include, uh, the, the new stuff here from, uh, Merck. They include everything that's uh, on the market of all. But the interesting thing is, is that they compare, if you want to say, okay, let's go and look at the studies done by Merck here. So I'm looking at the page right now. So the studies of Merck have, they've done five studies, five grand total of studies. Again, 64 for ivermectin. Right. Out of those studies, the, the, cumulative, the cumulative benefit of this, how good it is, according to this, this research side here, is 54%. Now, if you compare that to ivermectin, ivermectin has 64 studies. The cumulative benefit is 50 or 67 percent. In other words, the data here shows that there's not only 10 times the number of studies plus that have done by ivermectin, but the results have been more beneficial. This is all scientific data that's published right there. It's all published. So it'll be interesting to see what the FDA does. They've already uh, blown it regarding. Uh, uh, remdesivir. In fact, if they have they have a list here of all the different choices, and remde- about all those thirty choices, what the, the amazing thing to me is that remdesivir is the second from the bottom. In other words, as far as effectivity, they've rated them right. by, by effect effectivity. And out of the thirty choices, uh, remdesivir is rated like twenty eight and twenty nine. In fact, what it says here, based on studies here, it says aspirin. Get this. Aspirin has been scientifically shown to be a better treatment 
than remdesivir. Vitamin D has been shown scientifically to have a lot more studies and to be a more effective treatment than remdesivir. Well, you say yes. That is just astounding. So we're going back to where are the Dr. Fauci's and the, the CDC and the FDA here? Why are these people saying that? If they have some bug up their butt about ivermectin, why aren't they at least saying at least have vitamin D and have some like a murder scene? There's hair, there's blood, there's DNA, there's eyewitnesses, there's everything but a body. And they're telling you, oh, no, no, nothing happened here. And there's like a thousand pieces of evidence that obviously there was a murder, but they're just denying it all. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not surprising to me at all anymore. What I worry about is 99% of people are not going to look and research and think and apply and interview and move. And they just go along with what they're being told. So where are we headed? We're just headed for what? Medical destruction of everyone? I mean, where, where are we headed here? It's terrible. Well, the fact that we've had uh, this number of people die tells you. I mean, how many things have we had 700,000 people die for? My estimate, based on if we uh, if we had started to give people appropriate things like ivermectin, vitamin D, zinc, stuff like that from day one, and there were studies from early on here that uh, these were effective, if we had done that as a treatment, as a protocol, Instead of saying, go home, drink fluids, and come back when you're in death's doorstep, if they had done that, my estimate, and it is an estimate, but I think it's conservative, my estimate is 450,000 Americans died unnecessarily. Again, you have to just put this in perspective. That is more Americans than died in World War II. Well, don't don't forget the politicians say every life counts, except for yeah. that 450,000 that could have been saved. So that's the gist of my two reports here, Richard, that uh, we, we have gone way off from science here and we're doing political things or economic things for other people's benefit. And we as the public are being uh, horrifically treated because of this. And uh, we do need to uh, start objecting a lot more ab- aggressively because, as they say, 450,000 deaths, huh? How many people have to die before we take some serious action and say enough's enough here? Yeah, well, I don't think that's the metric. I think the metric is uh, how much money can they make for the... No, I'm talking about from the public's perspective. How many people have to die before the public rise up against these uh, this medical establishment and say, we're not going to take this anymore? And that's the question I guess I'm kind of asking you too, is like, this is all uh, completely dystopian and no one's listening to any common sense or science or anything. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's not a good one, I'm sure, but I don't know. Okay. Well, I don't know either. I'm, I'm not a radical or something, but I'm just saying that 450,000 people died unnecessarily. That That's not right. And people shouldn't accept that as being right, particularly when it's, these are well, that even, that, that's There's a lot missing from the calculus. How many people didn't get cancer treatments? How many people, you know, had died of uh suicide or misery how many domestic violence cases were created out of this how many jobs were lost how many you know the if you look at the entire calculus yes it's millions and millions and millions and millions of people have been screwed over by this thing so it's yes you know it's it's not just i mean it's far worse than that yeah to me this is the greatest crime against humanity i've ever seen so i think that's probably a fair assessment So my hope, I'm just a scientist. My hope is that if enough people get educated, that that would precipitate some action, some some fix, some responsibility coming from these medical establishments. So that's my hope. So that's why I've taken my time, my life to write these things out, to explain it. So people can't say, well, I had no idea this was happening, or I had no idea they deviated from science like this. It's all spelled out here. Well, that's why I, you know, in the beginning and now again, I want to thank you for what you do and all the work you put. You put a lot of work into this. I could definitely see, and I really appreciate it. And, you know, that's why I have you on the podcast. I want to get this out there as much as possible. And I just want to tell you, thank you. I don't know if people have told you, but I'm telling you. So I appreciate it, John. I have heard a lot of positive things. Uh, I would still like to see more results. But, again, uh, for your listeners here, C19 Science Info is the website that explains all this whole situation. So c19science.info. So thank you, Richard. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, anything else you can do to pass on that information, that would be helpful. 
mention your email again. It's AAPR. Uh, keep going, please. What's the email? AAPR John. That's Apple, mm-hmm. Apple, Peter Robert, John, J O H N, at NorthNet, N O R T H N E T dot org. Excellent. John, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it as usual. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.